Old Testament book, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're going to pick up at verse 15. Using that blue Bible in front of you, it's page 149. Deuteronomy is what its name means, Deuteros uh, Nomos. It's the second giving of the law. It's a rehearsal of all that's happened in Israel's life up to this point. The Ten Commandments will even get rehearsed in, rehearsed in this book as well. But, but Moses is right in the middle of rehearsing what God did for his people. So I'm going to read verses 15 through 20. The primary thing we're going to look at is verse 20. It'll come up in the sermon. But that's where we're at. We're in this rehearsal. So Deuteronomy 4, beginning at verse 15. Verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that that Yahweh, or that the Lord, spoke to you out of Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making... A carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the sea. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that Yahweh, that the Lord your God, has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Now just give me a second. Notice that God prohibits the making of these images, but it's not the making of images because this is the same God who would demand certain images be made in the tabernacle, right? It's primarily the making of images to worship. That's why he goes on to say, be careful about lifting your eyes to the heavens and see the sun, moon, stars, and you start worshiping them. This is the making of images. The prohibition is making images to worship them. And then God says this, verse 20. But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Keep verse 20 in mind. So now we turn to Colossians chapter 1. It's page 983. Colossians 1. I'm going to pick up at verse 9. So we continue our series through Colossians, getting on with the gospel. Not moving beyond the gospel, not leaving the gospel behind, not setting the gospel over in the bookcase, but getting on with the gospel and becoming part of our lives and the way that we live. Getting on with the gospel. Here we pick up at verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance, And patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What I've read to you from Deuteronomy and from Colossians, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God of might and grace, who has brought us out of the iron furnace of our own enslavement and have delivered us from the domain of darkness, thank you for making us a people 
of your own inheritance, bringing us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Teach us this day that we may be about gospel praying and so get on with the gospel. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon notes are on the back of your worship guide there with lots of space to write notes. Questions at the end for your care groups that meet tonight. I hope you're in a care group, if at all possible. Sinclair Ferguson. There's a quote by Sinclair Ferguson at the top of the sermon notes you want to look at. Sinclair Ferguson, by the way, is the nicest guy ever. I mean, he's a Scottish guy, and he's like everybody's grandpa. He's the best fella ever. If you ever meet him, he's just so pleasant to be around. And he wrote a book called The Christian Life, A Doctrinal Introduction. And Chris Kiefer reminded me of this quotation. I'd put it out before, and so it brought it back to mind, and I thought about it. I thought, oh, I need to put this in this sermon. He wrote a book called A Christian Life, A Doctrinal Introduction, in which he makes this observation. It's that kind of observation that stops us dead in our tracks. Here's the observation. The great temptation most of us face is to believe that very little has happened to us through grace. The greatest temptation most of us face is to believe that very little has happened to us through grace. Now that temptation Ferguson is talking about comes mostly from the voices in our heads and hearts. It's okay, I have voices in my head too. It's all right, we can all join together here. Those voices that tell us we're just not good enough. And in fact, we will never be good enough. And then even worse, we should be gooder than we are, like Sally over there or Sydney over there. And if you will listen to those voices a little bit more closely, these utterances often have the same accent as that serpentine accuser of the believers. These utterances often have that accent. These intonations are meant to convince you to look in the wrong place, to look at you through the lens of achievement and accomplishment, success and skill. Now, my friends, it's true. There's much that needs to be done. I think all of us would have to raise our hands and say, yep, that's me. There's much that needs to be done. But to think that not much has happened, has been accomplished because of God's gracious goodness, is at the worst to call God a liar, and at the least, to arrogantly assume that you are too special of a case for God to do any good with. That you're just too special, too hard for God to handle. And both of those extremes are utterly wrong. The great temptation most of us face is to believe that very little has happened to us through grace. Well, Paul will address that temptation and the answer to it subtly as he gets into this passage, as he describes his gospel prayers for the Colossians. And the gospel prayers for them is so that they will get on with the gospel. And so you can see how this is broken down, three points. The first is bearing fruit. It's verses 9 and 10, bearing fruit. Notice how Paul begins. And so, from the day we heard, the apostle has returned to the report that he had received from Epaphras 
about these believers in Colossians. That was verse 5, 6, 7, and 8 where he's received this report. And so he says, as we, and so from the day we heard. That report from Epaphras roused Paul to pray for this congregation. And so he goes on to say, and we have not ceased to pray for you. And he wanted them to know specifically what he prayed about on their behalf. Asking, he says. Now quickly notice something here. That what Paul says, we have not ceased to pray for you. Because when you get to chapter 4, verse 2, he will direct the Colossian Christians with these words. Colossians 4, 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Notice what Paul is doing at the very beginning. So this whole book is bookended by prayer with thanksgiving. And notice that Paul begins as a role model of the very thing he will direct them to do when you get to chapter 4, 2. Here he is. We have not ceased to pray for you. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And he's already been all about thanksgiving. That was verses 3 through 5. And he's going to come back to thanksgiving when you get down to verse 13. So he's, he's being a model of what he's going to call upon them to do when you get to chapter 4, verse 2. It's right here at the very front. And so notice that as he prays here, verse 9, Paul is going to recount his petition. But then verse 10, he is going to state his purpose for the petition. Verse 9 is the first part of the petition. Verse 10 is the purpose for the petition. Here's the petition. Verse 9. That you'd be filled with the knowledge of His will. Now, back up in verse 1, just as Paul was made an apostle and sent out one by Christ, by the will of God, he was made an apostle not by his own lights, his own power, his own prestige, but he's... He was made an apostle by the will of God. Notice that he prays that they would flourish in knowing what God wants them to do and to know that he has revealed to them what he wants them to do and to know that he has revealed to them that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, I'm going to go somewhere with this in a few minutes, a little bit further, but let me just say up front, when you're sitting around, and this happens a lot, when you're sitting around wondering if it's God's will for you to take that job or that job, if it's God's will for you to marry him or him or her or her, let me just tell you, God is not going to open up heaven and send you thunderbolts and lightning and tell you, marry her for crying out loud, right? He's not going to do that. But God has given us his will already that we need to know. Like Christians marry Christians, no negotiation. Right? Very simple. And so we're expected to grow in how do you apply all that. I'll get to that a little bit more in a minute. But just understand being that you be filled with the knowledge of his will. And then he goes on to say, the rest of the verse, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. My friends, whenever you hear the word spiritual in the New Testament, don't become freaky and get all ooey-gooey and think of mystical things. This is primarily, it's almost always the word means by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, by the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit, that you may be filled with the knowledge of God by the direction of the Holy Spirit growing in wisdom and understanding, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit growing in wisdom and understanding. That's... Spiritual, that's all the way through the New Testament. That's what that word almost always means. 
And so guided by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit to wisely live out the knowledge of his will. Well, that's pretty important. You know, God's word, God's revealed will is fairly black and white, as they say. The difficulty we have is how do you live it and apply it in this situation, in that circumstance? Let me give you an illustration. It's probably horrible, but I love it. So here we go. You know what the will of the transportation department is when you go driving down a road. Doesn't matter if you're in the city or out in the country. You know what I mean? White lines, I'm staying on the right, they're on the left. You don't, unless you're in England, but we're not in England. We're here in America, okay? And so I know to drive on the right side. And if there's no lines, I gauge. I'm expected to gauge where the right side is. And I know it doesn't matter what the condition is. Almost always, that's the will of the transportation department, or whatever their official title is now. That's the will of the transportation department when it gets dark, and when it gets foggy, and when it gets rainy, and it's below 32 degrees, and there's growing black ice. What I have to do is learn to drive in that situation to stay within these boundaries. I hope, is this, is this making sense? Right? And so when I hit a curve in the middle of the night out in nowhere, Oklahoma, in the middle of the night, and it's foggy, and it's starting to collect ice and stuff, I know where I'm supposed to drive, and I know where you're supposed to drive, by the way, right? And so, but I, you know, there's no law really about how to take that curve up there when there's black ice. But I have to navigate it. I have to learn so I don't slide off the road and run into anything. You got it? It's the same thing here. That you may grow, that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's pretty black and white. The problem is, is that we live in a world that is filled with all kinds of question marks. And so you need the next part. That the Holy Spirit also would guide you and grow you in wisdom and understanding as you apply the will of God. That's the point of the prayer. Does everybody get that? It's really huge. So there it is. It takes God's spirit leading and enabling us with real wisdom and understanding to be able to apply the knowledge of his will. And so Paul prays, but now he gives the purpose of the petition, verse 10. And you see it in the first three words. It tells you this is a purpose statement. So as to. So as to. So as to what? Well, he mentions four things. First off, to walk worthy of the Lord. It's not to impress the Lord. It's not to get him to like you or love you. It's because he's worth it. To walk in a way that says, my Lord is worth it. And he will give you reasons why the Lord is worth it in a few, in a few lines. Just hang on for that. Also, walking in a way that is not only worthy of the Lord, but is fully pleasing to him. It's not that God sits back in heaven and is hard to please. No, he's very pleased. But it's the fact that sometimes we can displease him. We can displease him. I know some people don't like to hear that, but it's even in our Westminster Confession of Faith. There are times we displease the Lord. You go have sex with somebody other than your wife, I'm going to tell you God is not smiling and happy with you. He is frowning. You are displeased. But it's a displeasure of your father. It's not the displeasure of some distant God who can't wait to fry people. It's it's the father who loves you deeply. You parents in here, If you never get displeased with your kids, something's wrong with you. You know what I'm saying? There are moments when they displease you because you know they know better. 
And it really grieves your heart that they chose not to act better. But here's the positive side of this. The Lord is pleased. He can be pleased. So to walk in a way that's worthy of him, that pleases the Lord. But then notice it gets to the last two. Bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit. Actually growing and thriving and flourishing and blossoming and fruit bearing in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. Knowing God better as you are filled with the will, the knowledge of his will, and so forth. Now notice that that bearing fruit in every good work and increasing, that's the language he used back up in verse 6. Just look back up in verse 6. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you is indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. So this is interesting. Paul already knows that they're bearing fruit and increasing, but what does he pray they will continue to do? What's the purpose that he prays for them? That they will continue to bear fruit and increase. Nothing wrong with us praying for the things that we even see are evident in people's lives and continue to pray for it, that it wouldn't stop, that it would grow in it. There you go. So Paul's prayer for them is to bear fruit. But added to this is that they will be braced for thanksgiving. I've worked hard to stay with some B language here, okay? They're bearing fruit, now braced for thanksgiving. And that's verse 11 and 12. Notice verse 11, Paul is back to prayer. The very first word tells you that. What's the first word? May, right? That's request language. That's petition and asking language. And what does he ask for? He asks that they would be strengthened with all power. Now, as good Americans, we love that kind of language. We like power. Paul's not asking that that they would increase with power so they could be faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, to become men of steel, the Superman. I just dated myself. I watched those shows as a kid. Instead, notice it's power that's actually according, you've got to go to the next phrase or statement, it's power that's according to God's marvelous power. That's what he says, right? Verse, verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now think about that. That's grace, my friends, that you may be strengthened with power according to his great might, his glorious might, that he's the one who would empower you, that he was the one, he is the one who would actually give you that strength you need. That's what he's praying for. That's grace. But notice it's not just to have power. There's a reason for it. Notice the next part of the verse. For endurance. That you would be durable. That you would be a durable people. That you'd have power so that you could endure. Endure what, Paul? Well, he'll get to it when you get to chapter 2 primarily and some other things. But it's the idea really of uh, being able to weather the storms that are going on, that rage in our world, that, are, that threaten to knock us down. That you would, God would strengthen you with his glorious might, with power so that you can endure. That's a huge point. But he goes on, he says, and to be patient have patience with joy. I love the phrase. Because you know as I do that sometimes patience ain't joyful. You know? You got, you, you know those times where you just grin and bear it? And so it takes a lot of prayer that we would be patient with joy. 
patient with joy. And then he goes on to tell us to pray, giving thanks to the Father. There he is, he's back to thanksgiving again, giving thanks to the Father. Paul's praying for power to brace us, to be durable, to be patient with joy, to be a thanksgiving people, power to weather the storms that worry us, storms and squalls that bring us to become increasingly depressed or doubtful so that we will always, instead of being doubtful and depressed, have a watchful eye out for thanksgiving. He prays that they would be braced for thanksgiving. Now why is that important? He tells you why. Look at the next part of the verse. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. I'm liable to get real excited starting right about here, okay? So if I haven't already, you know, shocked you, it's coming, okay? Giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us. Pretty big news. Anybody been in cross-country or track? You know, right at the beginning of the track meets or the cross-country meets, there's usually these qualifying rounds. You know, if you watch the Olympics, there's all these qualifying rounds. They have to work hard to get qualified. They have to go through all these different heats until it finally whittles down to this group right here. That's not what Paul's referring to here. I think the closest that comes to it, at least in my mind, and it's just funny. Anybody ever watch America's Got Talent? Britain's Got Talent? Yeah, I don't watch the whole show, but I watch little snippets here and there. And there's this moment when all the entertainers, you know, they're all, there, they're all up there trying to get, you know, to the next level. It's qualifying rounds. The big surprise comes, especially when Simon Cowell does this. That's the big surprise, Right? The big surprise is when, the, the, at the end of the performance, Simon Cowell gets up, well, one of the other uh, judges gets up, and they hit the golden buzzer. Boom! Down comes all the golden tinsel, and it's big music, and everybody's celebrating. The audience is celebrating. All the judges are celebrating. Everybody's crying, you know, especially if you're a contestant. You're crying. They're all, they always cry. What's the deal? They're crying up there. Because why? Because the golden buzzer says, no qualifying heats ahead of you. Done. You're qualified. Do you hear what Paul just said? God hits the golden buzzer for you. He qualified you. I don't know about you, but that's pretty exciting. He's hit the golden buzzer for you. Me? Yes, you. Wow. That's what Paul says there. And then he goes on. He's the one who has certified us. He's the one who has made us suitable well, how did, Paul, how did God do this? Well, Paul doesn't tell you just immediately. It'll come up when you get to verse 13 and 14. But you can't miss it when you get down to verse 21 and 22. Listen, here's how he qualified us. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind. Oh, I wasn't worth qualifying. Right! I wasn't worth qualifying. You got it. What happened? You who once were alien and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of the flesh, of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Golden buzzer! You're qualified! Woo! Sorry. There's more coming, I'm sure. It's that song we just sang, Grace, Grace. God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. 
qualified. But notice he qualified us for a specific identity, if you will, if you want to call it that. And it's the rest of that verse, to share. To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And my friends, starting right here, all the way through verse 14, this thing is packed with Old Testament. It is packed with Old Testament. You're already bumping into it. That is Old Testament language. That is language God uses for Israel. That is language, inheritance language, is the language that God uses for the descendants of Abraham. And so what Paul is saying to a church that is both Jewish and Gentile, he's saying God has qualified us to become together the descendants and offspring of Abraham. To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You couldn't miss it when you were listening to Deuteronomy 4 verse 20. I have brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be my inheritance. Do you hear the language there? And you, qualified, now get to share in that inheritance. To be part of God's inheritance. To share with the saints in light. It's what we heard in the call to worship that Alan was reading earlier. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. He gave you a destiny. He who qualified you gave you a destiny, an identity. You now are his inheritance. That means he's really pleased. He's really pleased. Pretty cool. If you belong to Jesus, then by Jesus, you are Israel. You've been added to the blessing-giving means by which all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Paul prays. Paul prays more for the goal of our being braced for thanksgiving. And he just can't stop. He's compelled to explain further the ground, the foundation of his prayer in greater detail. And it's this, it's verse 13 and 14, that God has built us to last. God has built us to last, verse 13 and 14. By God's initiating love and goodness in Jesus Christ, he has done several things here to build us into a durable people built us to last. We are the people who, in Christ, in solidarity with Jesus, notice verse 14, find redemption. That too is Exodus language and Israel language and Old Testament language, to find redemption. What does that mean? To find in Christ emancipation from our former enslavements. To find in Christ that we have been ransomed out of our previous hostage situation. Redeemed, set free, chains broken, shackles knocked off. Emancipation or manumission papers, whatever they're officially called, handed to you, set Free! Redeemed! And that redemption 
Notice that the major hostage taker then, in verse 14, is stated, the major hostage taker and enslaver was what? And forgiven of your sins. Sin. Sin is the great hostage taker. Sin is the great enslaver. And so this redemption removed our damnation. It removed our doom. It removes our disenfranchisement. The forgiveness of sins in Christ. The forgiveness of sins. The accounting books, if you will, are all wiped clean. The charges on the police blotter are all dropped. That which stands against you and condemns you, God silences forgiveness of sins. But this initiating love and goodness of God in Jesus Christ has another angle to it, and it's back there in verse 13. It's an angle that actually runs through this whole letter. Notice how he puts it. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's that Deuteronomy 4.20 language. I delivered you from the iron furnace from Egypt and made you something different, put you somewhere else, made you my inheritance. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's huge, giant language. So let's talk about the domain of darkness and then the kingdom of his beloved son briefly because both of these categories run thick through Colossians. Both of those run thick through Colossians. Listen. The domain of darkness that we have been delivered from, down in verse 21, is our own hostile alienation and evil deeds. Delivered! The The domain of darkness that we've been delivered from, chapter 2, verse 4, are the deluding, plausible arguments that will lead you astray. Delivered! The deluding, uh, the the, uh, the domain of darkness that we've been delivered from, chapter 2, verse 9, are the captivating philosophies and empty deceits according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. Delivered! The domain of darkness that we've been delivered from, chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, are the disqualifying notions that include asceticism, worship of angels, festivals, new moons, regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Delivered! The domain of darkness that we've been delivered from, chapter 3, verse 5 through 9, are the earthly ways that we used to live like everybody else used to live, with all sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Traits that Paul will call the the paleon anthropon, the old way of being human. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness. Delivered! And this domain, this realm, this territory, this domination of darkness no longer is over us. And glory to God, he has delivered us from it. But he's transferred us. He didn't just set us free to go meandering through life aimlessly and directionless. Right? He he just didn't set us free to just wander around doing whatever. Instead, it says he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. 
He transferred us into a new situation. It's much like when I went in the Air Force, June 13, 1979. Remember it well. Went into basic training, Lackland Air Force Base. It was blazing hot. Right? And my poor training instructor, Sergeant Coletti, I'll never forget him. He was a significant emotional event. <laughs> was taking this ragtag team of about 50 pimply-faced teenagers up to about a 21-year-old who are all used to being civilians living in a different way. And he's got six weeks to shape us up in the military people. We had to relearn life altogether. Right? We've been transferred into a new realm of existence. Are you picking this up? You've been delivered from the domain of darkness. You've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's brand spanking new. And Paul takes that and runs that all the way through this letter as well. Let me be a little bit briefer, but get, get you to see that. So when you get down to um, verse 23, the whole letter is taken up with what it must, means to have this gracious new way of being humans. And so in verse 23, now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. You get over to chapter 2, verses 10 through 15, and all of the in him with him language in chapter 2, verses 10 through 15. You can't miss it. That's what it is to be transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Or chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Raised with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. Transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And then chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. Where we put on the new way of being humans, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. So when Paul says this, verse 14 here, that's where the letter is going. It is driving there. And the theme all the way through, again, is this. God has hit the golden buzzer for you. You now are qualified. He's rescued you, delivered you from the iron furnace, from Egypt, from the domain of darkness. And he transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. He is worthy. And that explains then why he prayed earlier. Would he walk worthy of him? He's worthy. He's worthy. So my friends, let me try to tie a bow here with some applications. Most of this is about prayer. Because Paul is praying and it is guiding us in our prayer. Gospel praying is directed at fruit and increase. Nothing wrong with us. It's very right for us to pray for one another, for your husband. I'm looking at some wives here. For your husband and for your wife, that they would bear fruit under every good work and increase, etc. Right? It's good and right and fitting to do that. To pray for your kids. Pray for us. Pray for me. Pray for the elders, that we would bear fruit and increase. It's very fitting and right for us in our gospel prayers to desire thankfulness. Dear God, may they be a thankful people. I don't know about you, but in 21st century North America, we need some strong prayers that God's people would be thankful people. I'm just telling you. They'd be thankful people. Gospel prayers are built upon God's qualifying us. Should be a lot of Pentecostal hooting. Woo, when you're praying, God, I can't believe it. you qualified them and you qualified me. You qualified us. Gospel prayers are built upon God's qualifying us and gospel prayers are because 
God brings us a new life and a new way of living. Lord, you took them, you took her, you took him, and you delivered him from the domain of darkness and transferred him to the kingdom of your beloved son. There's a new way for them to live. May they grow in it. It's good for us to pray that way. That's gospel praying. But now, my friends, go back to Sinclair Ferguson's statement. You cannot miss it. He's, Paul's actually giving us the answer to what Ferguson was saying. The great temptation most of us face is to believe that very little has happened to us through grace. Did you not listen to anything I just said? Right? When you get into that gloomy moment and you're dark and depressed, which usually means you become very, very self-centered, you don't want anybody else to get in your business, right? That's what happens when you get depressed very often. When you get there and you think, oh, not much has happened to me since grace. You need to do what Martin Luther did one time as he thought he saw the devil accusing him and telling him he was a loser. He was sitting there. This is in a day when you had ink wells on your desk, right? You know, when you dip your little quill in there. He picked up that ink. Don't, don't do this. Your mom will get mad. He picked up that ink, quill, that ink well and he threw it at the wall. Get behind me, Satan. When those voices tell you you're not good enough, when those voices tell you you need to be gooder like that person or that person, you need to remember, God qualified you. Did you deserve it? No, you didn't deserve it. God took you out of the domain of darkness and He transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Tell me not much has happened through grace, would you? I'm not mad, I'm just excited. Do you get it? And maybe you're sitting there and you're, you've never known this grace. You, or you've never known what Paul's talking about, what I'm talking about. This is a good moment for you to stop and go, wait, why do I not know? Why do I keep pushing God away? Why do I not want this? Why do I not want what God has done? And you need to own up to it. Because I am, as Paul says, alienated, alienated and hostile in my mind doing evil deeds. And I tell you, the promise is there for you. If you will stop and turn around and call on the name of the Lord, you will know what it is to be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us, forgive us when we have succumbed to the great temptation. Believing that very little has happened to us through grace. Honestly, Lord, at least one of us here is a knucklehead. Forgive us for listening to those voices in our head and listening to the serpentine accuser of the believers as he whispers similar things. You've said it. You did it. You accomplished it. You brought it to pass. Oh, mighty things have happened through grace. Mighty things have happened through grace. So this day, as we walk out of here today, maybe kick up our heels, raise up our hands, lift up our voices, lift up our faces with a smile, knowing that you are smiling upon us. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for what you've accomplished in him. Lord, help us to get on with the gospel. 
In Jesus' name, amen.